All right. Well, good morning, friends. Nice to see you all. Nice to be here again. Uh, yeah, I, I always say when I'm here how much I like being here. I mean, I like New York generally. And um, when, I was, when I spoke to New York Insight about doing something this September, I had one eye on the tennis as well. <laughs> And I really love tennis, and I managed to get tickets for the, the men's semi-finals on Friday. So I had a most fantastic time watching tennis match on Friday. So that's the real highlight of being here, and, but this is very nice too. I always like uh, teaching at New York Insight and appreciate you know, a lot of kind of good spirit and brightness and enthusiasm, and also a lot of, a lot of the vision of... of the way New York Insight runs and, and how it was set up at the beginning. Uh, Gina Sharp, who's the founder of New York Insight, is a very dear friend of mine. And um, so, yeah, I'm happy to be here. I was just remembering listening to Peace read the description that I think probably three or four years ago, I came and taught a week-long retreat uh, for New York Insight, but we held it upstate somewhere. On, these, on the same theme, right, of going through this, these three different energetic centers. And all the, you know, the depth and potency of exploring in, in those ways. And as far as I remember, when we spoke about doing something in September, that was the request from New York Insight was to uh, look at the same theme. And as I hear Peace read it, as I say, it sounds a little ambitious to cover, it sounds like a lot of territory to cover in one day. So let's see what we can do with that. We can certainly have some time to practice and explore together. I'll also want to take some time to give a sort of an overview of how, how it makes sense to look at these three different energetic centers, belly center, heart center, head center. How it makes sense in terms of our experience and is helpful how it makes sense in terms of the tradition and the way uh, Buddha actually pointed to the uh, practicing in these kinds of ways, even though one might not hear the three different centers referred to explicitly. And I'll also want to make some time for, just for us to hear from each other and have some time for discussion and seeing what's alive for you in your practice and as the material of the day goes by. So I was thinking as I walked over this morning that I'd like, I'd like to start by actually sort of laying out some of that territory a little bit about around the three different centers. And that might mean me speaking for a little while. So I also then thought, well, before I just talk at you for a while, maybe it would be nice for us to sit and meditate first. So let's take a little time and I'll give a little bit of orientation just some meditation time to hang out in the natural immediacy of things. So I'll try to give a th an overview that um, 
maps the theme both onto our experience and to some of the formal areas of uh, Buddha's teachings and practices. And I don't have such a good sense of how the sound is here with the fans and all, so if, if the volume is too low, please just wave at me, or, uh, and either I can move this or Amit can do something. So, there seems to be, and we don't need to take it on board as a kind of framework particularly or not, because we can just test it out in our experience, but there seems to be um, these three particular energetic centers with an experience. Belly center, center of, uh, we could say, center of presence, and we could say center of love, center of wisdom. And we could also say the center of embodied intelligence, center of emotional intelligence, center of cognitive or intuitive intelligence. And of course that doesn't mean that all one's embodied experience happens down here. No, it's... Uh, it, experience is, is indivisible, right? Um, we experience throughout the whole field of our awareness. But certainly, as a way to tune in to um, embodied presence, as a way to wake up deeply and subtly and importantly to the fact that, oh, all of experience is here, as a way to wake up the fact that we experience from here, that everything happens here, that sensory life is here. That all that's seen and heard, and of course normally we say, well I see what's out there, I hear what's out there. But when we follow that, which seems obvious to us, oh look, look over there, here over there, when we follow that, we have the impression of losing ourselves, of being over there, of that sense of kind of fascination, literally like I was saying in the meditation, pulling us up and out of ourselves. And so using the belly center in ways we'll explore in different ways as a way to train the capacity to be in and down, to know from the inside. When that isn't developed, when we haven't developed a kind of grounding in the belly center, when we haven't developed embodied presence, then how does that show up? It shows up partly just being gone. It shows up by unconscious tension patterns, physical tension, moving and acting and living with, you know, with various tensions that, if unaddressed, can become chronic over time. Right? It can cause us injury or health conditions, etc. It shows up as a lot of kind of unmetabolized un nervous energy in the body, also sometimes. I was just sitting at a cafe yesterday and just looking around at the people in the cafe and just like checking out their embodiment. Right? And wow, you know, it's 
interesting. Like people, you know, you know, kind of a lot of time just looking and seeming and feeling kind of over-caffeinated in some ways that actually might be to do with coffee, right? But might not also just together kind of, you know, having the, the pace and the intensity and the vibration and the momentum of what's going on around us in this intensely built environment, have, then we find that unless we're consciously present in our bodies, then our bodies will, will adapt to that sort of fr the frequency of what's around us. And then we find ourselves literally pulled around by the city. So it's very beautiful, actually. Uh, very empowering as well rather than being pulled around by what's happening around us, to actually have a sense of, of ground in the midst of that. that We actually get, for the most part, to kind of choose the pace at which we're moving, sensing, responding, and finding that very, very, very often, most of the time, that pace can be considerably slower and deeper than we're used to. Slower and deeper than the, the pace that things are moving around us. And that that slowing and deepening is just, it's relieving. It's relieving to the nervous system. It's relieving to the kind of the inner busyness that we sort of get so used to that we don't notice it much of the time, that, but which is actually kind of jangling, wearing, stressing that actually generates kind of over-busyness, generates anxiety, generates distraction. So, I want to look at that part of, oh, the landing more in embodied presence. And then this sense of the, uh, the heart center. And again, clearly not all emotions happen just here. Can, emotions can pervade, again, the whole field of experience. But if you want to really track and follow and be attuned to and in touch with emotional life, then it, it's like there's an energetic waking up of this center. Because this is where most often we, we can find and feel and explore the tendency to either... Uh, contract, shut down, sort of armor the heart, as it were, against the vagaries of feeling life, against the possibility for feeling hurt and sadness and pain and confusion, etc. Or where we find we sort of just get drowned in and pulled around by emotional drama. And where we also have the opportunity to wake up kind of the capacity for depth of feeling, depth of appreciation, depth of joy. Kind of the, the kind of, it's like the way the heart is the sort of receptor for beauty. And so, giving some attention to the heart center in that way. And then the head center, which related more to kind of clarity, the basic luminosity of mind, 
it's related to a kind of waking up to the inherently kind of wide open, spacious nature of awareness. Wide open and spacious, and yet usually, for most people, kind of contracted around and fixated upon ideas and images and impressions and interpretations, basically. Again, you see that in meditation, how easily some compelling idea or image arises and how, oh, right? The the tendency to contract around and fixate upon it, which, so that, in such a way that the whole wide open field of experience where life is happening gets you know, gets tight around that thing, as if the universe is made up of that concern, that idea, that memory, that problem, that thing that I'm, I'm interested in or caught up by or fixated upon. And the training of the capacity to really make good use of ideas and images and interpretations and impressions, but without the contracting, without the fixating. The capacity to actually maintain a wide open, fluid, clear, bright mind. And so then if we look to the the tradition, well firstly I would say, you know, there's there's three broad groups of practices in the tradition that relate directly to the three centers. The broad group of practices, slightly misleadingly, because of the uh, translation, but the whole broad group of practices that relate to the belly center are all the practices called mindfulness. That's why mindfulness is such a shitty translation for Sati, in the, the Chattara Satipatthana, so the four fields of Sati, I would prefer to translate Sati by pr- the word presence, which is much better fit then for the belly center. Right? Mindfulness suggests this kind of mental approach to meditation or to experience that just, to me, just doesn't seem to be there in the tradition. Or if you actually look at the, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, right? Some of you are looking like very unfamiliar. If you are unfamiliar, I think there are classes about it at New York Insight. But what the, so the Satipatthana is the, the, the main meditation teachings where the Buddha unpacks these four fields for being present in, the four fields of experience. And again, they're spoken about uh, not in terms of being mindful of, but much more the, the, the sense in the, in the language and in the teaching is being present inside of. Right. So the first one, uh, uh, kaya nupasana. Being present, or nupasana kind of means tracking. Tracking bodily experience. And this phrase that runs through all the four fields, maybe you just can raise your hand if you don't, if the, this term, the four fields, or what's usually called the four foundations of mindfulness, is very unfamiliar to you, maybe you could just raise your hand, just have a sense. Okay, okay, good. 
So the first one is the field of bodily experience. Being present in, tracking bodily experience. So that's not something you do cognitively. It's something you do, like I was saying in the meditation, by coming in and down. Sensing bodily life from the inside. And initially, body, when we say body, we think of it as being this thing, this lump of flesh. But when we come inside bodily experience, we don't find a lump of anything. We find a kind of a vibrant uh, field of experience, a field of sensation and vibration, a field that doesn't have distinct edges. The idea of body has very distinct edges. The image of body has very distinct edges. But when we inhabit the field of bodily experience, we find a kind of diffuse sense of bodily life, or a spherical feeling sense of bodily life, an expansive sense of bodily life. So, and actually, I won't go through all four right now, maybe we'll get into them, but for those of you who are familiar, all four of the uh, satipatthanas, the, different, the fields of experience, are really about inhabiting, knowing the body within the body, knowing the feelings within the feelings. That refrain is repeated really through the texts. Knowing, or we might say in, inhabiting, the, um, the, the concepts or the mental emotional experience from the inside. Knowing the nature of experience from the inside. And it's very interesting when the Buddha talks about not just mindfulness, but when he breaks it down a little bit more into what attention is and how to give attention. the, The fact that we can train our attention. But mostly, so the first way of distinguishing is two different types of attention. The first type of attention, ayunisomanisikara in the Pali, means disembodied attention. Or we might call it abstracted attention. That's the kind of attention that runs our experience. Right? Our habits run on disembodied attention. Right? So, being pulled out, pulled up and out, like we were saying, while walking down the street, or having a conversation. We're often up and out to what's the other thinking and what am I going to say and how can I impress them and what do they think of me? Or sitting in meditation. Just those 20 minutes. How much of the time was experience and was attention really here, in and down and restful and relaxed and grounded and awake? And how much of the time was Attention disembodied, abstracted, busy with, you know, ideas and fixations, etc. And then, the co- by contrast, the word that the Buddha uses for embodied attention, present attention, bellyish attention, is yoniso manisikara. Yoni means womb, in this sense. So, what I've been calling embodied attention. The, the closest literal translation for it, for the word the Buddha uses, is "wumi," wumi attention. 
right? Woo me attention. It's very beautiful. When I first read that, I got quite excited about it. Woo me attention. You know, letting your attention be, so we might say, embellied attention. And also, you know, the wo- it's, a, it's a strong image, the womb. The womb is, uh, you know, we all come from a womb. The womb is the center of life, origin of life. So a way of evoking a sense of that deepest place within us. The deepest place within us, the womb. Energetic womb. Right? Because clearly we don't all have biological wombs. Right? Those of you who are feeling left out, right, like me, through lack of biological womb, right? it's okay. We're not talking about biological, but the sort of energetic sense of the belly center. The way the Buddha just uses language to evoke the belly center is by calling it womby attention with those qualities, maternal qualities, right? Quality of ah, being filled with life. That's what a womb, that's what happens to a womb. Womb gets filled with life. And Maybe it's the single most important or most powerful or most liberating tr- uh, transformation in this kind of practice. Actually training the capacity to go from being the vast majority of the time ajoniso, disembodied, caught up, out of ourselves, not really knowing what's happening here, to be yoniso, right? embellied, having a sense of being landed in, grounded in the belly center, which again doesn't mean that all our attention's here, but it's a, it, there's a sense of like here being our center of gravity. Do you know what a weeble is? No? Maybe the weebles wobble, but they don't fall down, exactly. So it's a kid's toy that maybe you had here, we certainly had in the UK growing up, and they're kind of like eggs with a weight in the bottom. And then I think they have faces drawn on or whatever. And the, the, they were a toy because, you know, you could beat them up, basically. But they wobble, but because of the weight, they don't fall down. They just vroom. And then you wobble them over. That's a good example of deeply the feeling of really being yoniso, embellied, embodied, landed, grounded, relaxed, and with a feeling of that being kind of unshakable. And that. We'll give attention to that today, both of the cultivation of real embodied presence and then a looking at uh, some of the mechanisms by which we go up and out, lose ourselves. Some of the ways in which as we learn to come back in and down, we find the various discomforts and um, defenses and the reasons that we learned, you know, good reasons probably, painful reasons by which we learned, oh, this isn't a comfortable or okay or safe or reliable place to be. 
and learned to kind of try to protect ourselves from discomfort by, by checking out. And yet, as I say, the, the single, in my experience at least, and that's why it actually, you know, while these, this area of teachings and practices that come under the, 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 the title of mindfulness, presence, I would say, that's why they get so much attention. Not because that's a mental discipline, but because it's massively transforming, relieving, clarifying, grounding, relaxing. To, to train that capacity, establish that capacity to be here where we are. And maybe, for some of you, that capacity is, is well-trained and well-grounded. And maybe, for some of you, that capacity seems like something very difficult and uh, uh, far off and maybe even impossible. But it's really not. It really just it, it takes a certain sincerity and a certain steadiness and a certain willingness to keep on coming back. But every time you do that, every time you realize that you're gone and you just come back, you right there and then, you cultivate the capacity to recognize and to let go and to reestablish. And even in the, in, the, in the case of one's formal meditation practice or your daily meditation practice, your terrible, low-grade disappointing, poor quality meditation practice. (laughs) That's how we tend to think of it. Oh, you know, we think of meditation like it looks in the magazines, like, hmm, and then everything, (laughs) you know those pictures that like those Facebook memes, like what my family think meditation is, what my my meditation's really like, you know, right? But we easily get hung up on the quality of that, as if I should be just perfectly present in some way and perfectly peaceful. But what would you, what would you learn from just being perfectly peaceful? Right. Actually, the fact that your meditation is, is characterized by a lot of going here and there, it's like, that's your practice. Not to measure or judge the fact that, oh, you got caught up again, oh, you got caught up again but actually to really just the willingness again and again, a thousand times, a million times, just make that tiny, subtle adjustment, but that, that over time generates a momentum of radical transformation from being basically lost, caught up, and gone to being basically the vast majority of the time like a weeble. Right? Steady, relaxed, present, available to life, available to experience, able to actually notice and taste when some defensiveness or some anxiety or some stress or some fear or something, because we're here already to feel it before it gets so big that we're, we're unable to manage it. Way before. 
So that's really, that's the territory of what's usually, and I would say, you know, it's too late now to change the word from mindfulness. I get it. I've missed the boat, right? I'm not going to start the campaign to try to change that word. But everything that, that comes under those, the territory of mindfulness practice is really about presence in the middle of what's happening. And then you've got the, the whole, uh, all the territory of the heart practices. Right? The, actually, the, uh, with all the heart stuff, and I'm particularly thinking of the Brahma Viharas, right? the three, uh, pati- the three, four, <laughs> the four particular uh, flavors of love, basically, that the Buddha points out as being these boundless qualities of heart. And in the tradition, it's interesting, they're not really originally, you know, since then, in the later tradition, particularly in Burma, and then actually most particularly in the American tradition, right, with people like Sharon Salzberg, who've you know, done beautiful work of, of sort of designing and bringing forth the, uh, the territory of the heart as areas of practice and ways of practicing and ways to cultivate particular heart qualities. But it's also interesting that in the original tradition, the Buddha doesn't speak about the heart stuff as practices. It's spoken about more as just the qualities of heart are evoked as ways to tune into and recognize and um, sort of give oneself to these qualities of heart. So the four main qualities that are attended to, right, metta or uh, care or kindness or friendliness, usually called loving kindness, or sometimes called loving kindness, that, which is that feel in the heart of a kind of warm, open, radiant quality. And we all know what that's like. Now, I think that's one of the difficulties, or we have to be careful when we think of it as practice, a practice as if it's something that I need to um, generate. We all know what it's like to feel open-hearted. Maybe not all the time. Of course not all the time, because there's various ways the heart shuts down. But I think it's important to recognize the way those qualities are already intact in some way, that there are situations or relationships where we have access to feeling friendly towards others, friendly towards ourselves, most essentially friendly towards experience. And again, that's the way that uh, it's, I would say, most helpfully presented rather than this division of generating heart qualities either towards others or towards oneself. Essentially, we're generating a kind of open-heartedness to experience. Then the, whether it's here, inward or outward, all that, that can take care of itself, actually. Right? Like the possibility of being friendly towards experience. Bodily experience, emotional experience, situational experience. Right? And that, that first heart quality is the sort of default, I think of it as the default resting place of the heart. Right? There's nothing particularly stimulating happening, just the way the natural tendency when the heart isn't defended, uh, frightened, uh, 
anxious, etc. The natural resting place of the heart leads into a kind of gentle, warm, radiant openness. And it seems to be that that's a universal experience for human beings. We experience that quality of heart in just that way. Warm and radiant. Radiant means it feels like it spreads. It spreads. Like a radiator. And then, second quality of heart, karuna, or compassion, which is that the way the heart can actually respond to that which is painful. Right? Often we react to what which is painful, and get either overwhelmed in the story of it, why, why now, why like this, why me, or why them, or etc. Or we kind of shut down as a way to not feel it. But this quality of heart, and this flavor of love, is that, that quality that's able to just actually let the heart be tenderized by the inevitable pain of life. To actually keep the heart wide open to the fact that, oh, we lose everyone that we love. Or they lose us. We lose each other to death or to situational change or, or whatever. We lose everything. It's like, ooh. Right. You know, that's, if, we, if the heart can't accept that we lose everything, then it sounds, you know, miserable or depressing or morbid. Focus on death, for example, or we lose everything. Oh, thanks a lot. Right. But actually, it's true that we lose everything. If we really take that in, there's the way in which the heart not only gets tenderized by the fact that we lose everything, but then we also start to really feel the preciousness of what's here while it's here. Oh, I'm going to lose you, or you're going to lose me, so let's love each other while we're here. In fact, that you know, experience is sometimes painful. Loss is painful. Confusion is painful. Violence is painful. Plenty of the things that we can see happening in our, in our lives or in our relationships or in our families or in our communities or in the wider social sphere, in the kind of ecological emergency, are painful. So you either dance around that, you either make it very complicated and justified, or you let it in. And the, the letting in the... The, the, the pain or the tragedy or the, the kind of the loss that's there in life, again, it has a universal human feel to it, which is, it's painful. It's that quality of the heart that just, ah, oh, that aches. But the, the, the counterintuitive thing is, there's nothing wrong with an aching heart. If what's happening is painful, it's absolutely right that the heart aches with that. That's actually where some kind of loving response comes from. Open response comes from. No loving response comes from being shut down or checked out or overwhelmed or full of blame. Loving response comes from the letting the heart be tenderized by the fact that this is painful. When it is. And then, third quality that's spoken about in the texts, 
the heart's capacity for joy, mudita. The, the way the heart has this vast capacity to delight, to enjoy, to appreciate, to be nourished by beauty and wonder and you know, all that is beautiful. So it's not like we choose, oh, which heart quality shall we turn on? Right? No, this is, the, this is the way, as the heart gets tenderized, undefended, it has a natural life. The natural default pl- pl- resting place of the heart, metta, warmth, radiance. The natural response to pain, loss, suffering, oh, mu- uh, karuna, compassion. The natural response to being struck by beauty, wonder, gratitude, etc. <gasps> Delight, appreciation, enjoyment, enjoyment. And we all sort of like to enjoy, but actually some of us really need to develop the quality of enjoying. You actually need a pretty open and undefended heart in order to really enjoy. Otherwise, you tend the, 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 the kind of closed heart's version of enjoying is, trying, is, is sort of a con- kind of consumptive relationship to pleasure. Get something that feels good. Um, you know, we do that around whatever. Right? We do that around, you know, any of the the sensory. Um, plenty of ways to get pleasant sensory stimulation. Right? Food, sex, entertainment, etc., etc. Those are the some of the coarser forms. Right? But that, for kind of tragically. For a lot of people, maybe even most people, that's the only relationship they really have to, re- to uh, sort of that version of real joy or appreciation or wonder or gratitude or delight is a kind of consumptive relationship to pleasure. Let me try to get that which will make me feel good. And it sort of works, you know, very briefly usually, but it sort of works but in a very un, in a, in a quite unfulfilling way. So some of us seem to have easier access than others, but it's something we can actually attune to. We all know what joy feels like. And again, it seems to have a universal human form. It feels like it's a kind of fizziness, a sort of like that, like that in the heart. Fizziness. Sometimes I could think of it as, or call it champagne in the heart. You know? It's interesting that we use champagne for celebration. Right? I think it's something about the bubbles. Right? In some way in which the fine bubbles of champagne replicate that kind of that fizziness of heart, which is what it feels like when, the, when we're able to delight in beauty, goodness. And then the, the fourth quality that's these, you know, these, these four are spoken about in the tradition as limitless, boundless qualities of heart. Um, because there's, there is no limit. I mean, we get to taste that. We know these uh, qualities in certain ways, but as we 
know them more, as we attune to them, as we make room for them, and as we work with the things that, you know, shut us down or get us overwhelmed in the emotional life, we get to taste increasingly how oh, there's no limit to the way in which that feeling of friendliness can expand. We get to taste also how there's no limit to the heart's capacity to actually just um, stay open to pain and difficulty and unsatisfactoriness. And there's no limit to the heart's capacity to delight in and enjoy and be nourished by beauty. And then this fourth quality is the kind of upeka in the tradition, sometimes called equanimity. It's really about just a kind of feeling of a wide open spaciousness of heart. A kind of recognition that, wow, life is totally uncontrollable. And there's all of this stuff going on. And some of it we like, and some of it we don't like, and some of it we can do something about, and some of it we can't do anything about. And it's all kind of flowing through this field of experience. And the only real response that makes sense in the face of all of those vagaries is a kind of wide open heart. Nupeka is that quality of spaciousness. And that's again, seems to be the universal human experience of it, is as a sense of space. Spacious heart. A sense of having room for it all without getting bogged down in the details. <coughs> Pulled around by the details. So, of course, there are other heart qualities as well. Generosity is a heart quality. Uh, confidence, actually, is a heart quality. Uh, peacefulness is partly a heart quality. But these four really are the ways in the tradition that this whole area of activating and awakening in this, this energetic center get described in terms of these, what I call these four flavors of love, these four particular ways in which the, the heart in its free nature uh, makes sense of life, responds to life. To the painful and to the delightful and to the general. And then, so, belly center and all that goes with the mindfulness, heart center and all that goes around the Brahma Viharas, those heart qualities. And then the head center, which is the general, I would say, is the general body of teachings and practices that are related to kind of to uh, jhanas, right? so the training of the mind in various ways to become quieter, more refined, more clear, more peaceful. That's why I say that peace is partly a heart quality because peace is also very much a head quality right? of actually having a quiet mind. <coughs> And sometimes we can get into a lot of struggle in meditation practice, and maybe you're familiar with this yourself, because we try to make the mind quiet. And it just doesn't work. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Why don't you shut up? It's a terrible way to try to make your mind quiet. Actually, there's an, that's why there's an order to the three centers. Actually, inhabiting experience, relaxing physically, energetically into experience. Right? 
learning to undo some of the reactive tensions or relax all the ways in which we keep bouncing up and out of ourselves. That's the foundation. Physical relaxation is the foundation for peace. And then the heart center, right? The ways in which we get defensive or overwhelmed and actually learning to tune into these qualities of openness to what's happening, receptivity to experience, caring for life, loving what arises, whether we like it or not. That builds on that foundation for peace. And then we find we don't need to actually do very much with the mind to make it peaceful. It's more about we, just, we settle. And we, we settle and we notice. We notice where mind goes and we leave it alone. We stop feeding it. We stop feeding the, the familiar habits. We don't try to, we don't fiddle with them. We don't manage them. We don't try to tie them up and beat them on the head and shut them up. Right? We stop feeding them. And then embodied presence and open-heartedness and clear seeing. The head quality, clear seeing. Vipassana literally means clear seeing. Seeing into mind and experience as it is has the natural effect of a simpler mind, a simpler relationship with mind. All kinds of complex processes can be happening, right? Meeting experience, digesting experience, feeling experience, caring for experience, thinking about experience. But they're happening within a groundedness, an openness, and a clearness, brightness. Mind, by its nature, is luminous, bright. If you just just right now, as you're sitting here, right, what's enabling you to know that you're here? It's the brightness of mind. Mind is so bright you can't turn it off. Try to turn off the brightness of your mind right now. Try to just go unconscious and not be aware of anything. No, still here. You can't shut down. Mind is luminous by its nature. And so as we, as we recognize that, as we wake up in this center, the center of cognitive intelligence, of brilliance, of uh, intuitive knowing, we find that in just the same way in the belly center that we go from Um, being up and out to being here. And in the same way that in the heart center we go from either being defended or overwhelmed to being open. And in the head center we go from fixated on the details and dramas of what's happening and why it's happening and what it means about me and what I should do and da 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 to being established in the open space and brightness in which thoughts are coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. The presence or absence of thought doesn't matter so much. Often in meditation we get too busy trying to work with the presence or absence of thought. 
Much more important than that is the, the, the openness or clarity or brightness in which the thought life is happening. That's a much better... Uh, uh, Establishing in that brightness is a much more reliable condition for skillfully managing and sorting through and kind of clarifying one's thought processes. Much better than trying to be the agent of managing one's thought processes. That doesn't seem to work. Probably you've spent years doing that already. No? Trying to manage my thought processes. But you know, habits are strong. And you've probably had some decades, we have all had some decades, of reinforcing certain habits. So just deciding, you can decide, I'm not going to get angry anymore. What? I'm not going to think about that anymore. It just doesn't work. Right? I'm, not, I'm, going to, I'm going to stop um, reacting in that particular way. You can decide something as much as your life. Your, your whole system doesn't give a fuck about your decisions. <laughs> so, that's, that's the kind of the overview, and I'm aware I've spoken for a, a while now, but that's the, that's, I wanted to kind of lay out the territory so we can, we can kind of feel our way through, and hopefully some of these things, as we just do some practices together and explore together through the days, some of these these things can you know, come alive in your experience. So before we carry on and we'll switch gears a little bit and do some practices, I just, is there anything that I've said that's not clear or that you have any sort of question about right now? Please, Jed. <coughs> I, I have a very basic question which... Um, Perhaps you can answer, or, or maybe it's sort of a background thing. That if, when we take um, these uh, qualities and aspects of awareness and life that you're talking about, and we um, talk about them in terms of a part of the body, like mm -hmm. the belly or the heart or mm -hmm. the head, um, um, why? Like, what are me? What are we? as students to make of that? Or, or am I to, to what extent should I be focusing on the um, sense of the physical location mm -hmm. or my um, understanding of that as a part of my anatomy versus just um, my sort of phenomenological yeah. connection to what you're yeah. talking about? So it's energetic rather than anatomical, right? So when I say womb, like, you know, some of us don't have biological wombs, right? So in the anatomy, we'd be hopeless there. But it's really, it's pointing to that sense of the lower belly, which, you know, that which is referred to as the hara in Japanese, or danchen in Chinese, or the kaf in the Sufis. You know, there's a, most spiritual traditions have a word that isn't anatomical, right? But for that for that area of the lower belly, right? So, danchen, hara, calf, or womb, right? But like heart, when we talk, when in all the ways I've been talking about the heart this morning, I don't mean the organ that pumps blood around the body, right? 
I mean this area where we somehow intuitively sense that, that, you know, that love and emotional life and fear and defensiveness and all somehow have their, their energetic center here. We sort of know that when we speak about the heart, even, you know, love heart. We, we, we're familiar with speaking about the heart in a way that we know isn't anatomical. We, we have the same word, heart and heart, but we know the difference. Right? But we don't, we don't, we're not familiar with that. Just culturally, it's not in our lexicon right, to speak about the belly in that way or the womb in that way or whatever. But it's, it's the same thing. When I'm talking about embellied attention, it's not about trying to feel into your stomach as an organ or, uh, or your womb as an organ, but it's, it's around that capacity, because these are somehow, you know, it's just the way, it just seems to be the way experience works, that they're real things, these energetic centers. I mean, they're intangible, right? But just like we get it that the heart is a real, it's real, the energetic heart, so too, that's for all three centers. And so, the, the training embodied presence, which is bigger than just the belly, but training embodied presence by bringing one's attention again and again in and down to the lower belly, right, to that area between your navel and your sexual organs, basically, right, the lower belly, that bit there, that bit where, you know, we sit like this if you're a Zen practitioner, for example, right. And that's sometimes helpful if you have difficulty to just land your attention in there. Actually holding it, putting one or both hands there, it's quite a help, can be helpful just to, it brings warmth and sensation into that area. So don't worry about the anatomy. I mean, just the sense of from up and out to in and down, and specifically in and down there. You can track the breathing there. And again, anatomically, breath doesn't happen down here. Breath happens in the lungs, right? But energetically, breath totally can go, goes down here. Right? Energetically, you can actually feel the tide or rhythm, the movement of breath, sort of throughout the whole field of experience. You can feel like every cell is breathing. You can feel like the whole universe is expanding with each in-breath and resting with each out-breath. So without trying to nail that down to, well, is that actually happening physio physically? Is the entire universe breathing in time with me? Right? It would be tragic to try and work that out. Right? But we can trust the energetic sense of that expansion, relaxation, filling out, resting. And then in the midst of that, it's staying present down here until the down here can, can feel like it's completely multidimensional and, and does feel like it fills the universe, maybe. But it's also right here. That helps a lot, thanks. Oh, okay, good. good. Yeah, Ellen? Just wait for the mic. The jhanas. You mentioned about the jhanas. Hold the mic a little closer. Yeah. Okay. I was saying... Um, when you got up here, hmm. you started to talk about the jhanas a little bit. Can you expand upon that? Well, so the, the jhanas, are, are, 
you know, ways of, of training a certain absorbed quality of mind. But I don't want to go into them too much because this just, you know, actually doing that kind of practice, some people have a great f- facility for accessing those things easily. But for generally, you do, you kind of cultivate those specific areas of practice. They need particular setup conditions, right? A lot of, you know, silence, retreat type conditions. So it doesn't seem helpful to go into them a lot. If you're familiar with them, good. If you're not familiar with them, you could get familiar with them, um, reading, etc. And I think one thing I'll say about them which is helpful, often if we read about or we learn about or we listen to teachings about the jhanas or we try to practice the jhanas, they can seem like they're only about these particular deepening meditative states that we can get into. And they, they can be that. That's partly what they are. But they're, they're also um, qu- qualities that can be known in the experience, particularly the formless jhanas. So the formless jhanas initially sound like, if you're not used to them, they just sound a bit kind of cosmic and weird. They're the, the, ba- the jhana of um, infinite space, the jhana of infinite consciousness, the jhana of infinite nothingness, and the jhana of neither perception nor non-perception. But actually, without fixating on trying to attain those as particular states, we might sometimes, just in sitting, breathing, relaxing, being grounded in the belly, like we were just saying in response to the previous question, having the sense that our breath, or that our awareness, or that just consciousness itself is infinitely expansive. Right? Like I said this morning, the idea says that this is my body, it's this shaped, and it's here, and it stops here. But direct experience can fill out way more than that. So we can get a taste of a sense of infinite space. The infinite spaciousness of awareness. And then we might also just have that taste in meditation of the way that not only do I have a sense of kind of vast, wide open field of awareness, but I can also sense the way that this field of awareness is characterized by its conscious. That knowing is everywhere, that life is somehow awake to itself. And again, without trying to work out if that's true or not, that we can somehow just taste the way life feels, all of life feels awake to itself. That's the jhanic factor of um, the sense of infinite consciousness. And then we might, as we just attune to that, here a kind of exquisite silent stillness that seems to be the inmost nature of that knowing in the way everything somehow is completely fundamentally at rest within itself even in the midst of all this activity and movement and sound and we might recognize that as the, the quality of the of the sense of infinite nothingness so i think it can be worth if you're interested in the jhanas, find out about them, consider them, but don't think about them only as meditative states or attainments, but as actually tastes of experience that can come alive in, in all kinds of ways, and in maybe in much more accessible ways than one might think. Okay. All right. So I think um, what I, actually what I'd like us to do is we'll do a few different exercises 
about embodied, embellied, womb-me attention. But I'm aware that you've been sitting here with me for a long time and your legs are likely to be pulling on your attention much more than your belly. So we'll first we'll just take a few minutes to stretch. You might need to use the bathroom or drink some water and just make yourself comfortable. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.